Please turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 28. Again, we're last two Sundays of, in the book of Acts, Lord willing, here, and excited to see uh, Paul arrive in Rome. As we turn there, I want to encourage you to, to come back this evening as we spend uh, some time this morning worshiping the Psalms, and it should just be a great time as, as a family. I love Sunday evening services, and it's, it's worth your time uh, to, to continue to celebrate the Lord's Day uh, with His His, his uh, his body this evening, if you're able to, to do that. Also this evening, we'll be welcoming in some, some new members, and so uh, we'll have a short family meeting time after that, after the, the psalm uh, evening, and welcome those uh, brothers and sisters into our, our fellowship. Also this morning, we are participating in the Lord's Supper, and so uh, the Lord's Supper is open uh, to all at Bethany Community Church who've placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a member of Bethany Community Church, although we do encourage you to be a member of a local church. And uh, if you did not grab the elements as you came in, you may do so as I ask everyone to stand and, and read God's Word together. Uh, look forward to celebrating that as, as a body here uh, at the end of service. And also encourage you as you prepare your heart to partake of the Lord's Supper that you'd make sure that uh, things are right relationally with you and other believers. Maybe there's there's a relationship that you have been uh, slow to forgive in or slow to seek reconciliation with, and if there are, are things that are, are not right with you and another believer, encourage you in your heart even now uh, to commit to the Lord in repentance, to, to, to seek out peace as, as much as is possible with you. We want to take the Lord's Supper, receive the grace of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner here this morning. So now, if you'd stand with me in honor of God. As we read Acts chapter 28, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 23 this morning. Remember, Paul and his companions have been on the island of Malta, and we come to verse 11. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting it at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, 
we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness in bringing us here this morning, for your kindness in granting us life, for allowing us to be in, in relationship with you through faith in your Son, Jesus. We thank you for your kindness in allowing us to, to wake this morning and then to, to be here with our, our brothers and sisters. We thank you for the salvation that we've experienced. We pray that you would help us, that you would continue to be kind to us this morning as we look more closely at your word, trying to, to understand you more fully and walk in obedience to you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, Paul enters the city of Rome. And hopefully you know a little bit about Rome. Remember, Rome was, was founded kind of like in, we don't even know exactly when. It's kind of shrouded in mist and, and legends and things like that. But around, you know, the 5th, 4th, 3rd century, it really begins to grow from a, a city to an empire. And so by the time that Paul arrives in Rome, this, this uh, empire has, has reached maybe it's near its height of its of its influence in terms of its, its geographic expansion. It's near the height of its power. As Paul enters the city of Rome, the, the capital of the Roman Empire, there are some one million people living there. There are, of course, Italians and Greeks that live in Rome, but there are people throughout the Roman Empire, people from, from Asia and people from Africa and people from Spain and Germany. There are, are Jews living here in Rome, about 40,000 Jews live in Rome in the first century. So about 4% of the population of the city are Jewish. To be Roman in the eyes of the state was to worship the Roman gods and particularly to, to honor the emperor. It was impossible to, to separate religion from, from state in the Roman Empire at this time. In fact, emperor worship kind of varies from region to region. So, for example, in the East, there was a high level of, of emperor worship. There was a, a children's book that was found, a fragment of it was, was found from this period. And, and here's what the children's book found in this eastern part of the empire reads. It says, what is a god? That which is powerful. What is a king? He who is equal to the divine. There's a belief that the, the more powerful an individual was, the more reliant you were upon them. And so uh, even if, if people didn't view an emperor as exactly a god, they certainly would at least view him as someone through whom the gods mediated and operated. And all the blessings that you needed from a god could also come from an emperor. And, and an emperor was, was someone who could control uh, legions of armies with his very word. And so there was a, a, a huge impulse to, to see this, this emperor as, 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 a, as a divine figure, as someone who should be venerated or, or worshipped, and sacrifices were offered to him or in his name. Allegiance to the emperor 
was viewed as absolutely necessary. Unquestioning allegiance to the emperor. And it's that demand for ultimate allegiance to the emperor that caused many of our brothers and sisters in Christ to lose their lives. Ignatius was martyred in 108 A.D., it said that he appeared before the emperor, Emperor Trahan, and Emperor Trahan demanded to know, why are you not worshiping our gods, and why are you encouraging others to act foolishly as well? And Ignatius says this, he says, I have Christ the King within me. You are in error when you call demons of the nations gods. For there is but one God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that are in them, and one Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, whose kingdom I will enjoy. And a short time later, indeed, Ignatius did enter into God's eternal kingdom. Now, you and I are also part of a worldly kingdom a worldly kingdom that demands allegiance to it. And within this kingdom that demands allegiance and love to it, God calls us to preach the gospel message. And it's a, it's a kingdom message, this gospel message that we preach. And I wonder if sometimes our, our gospel proclamation is more anemic than it should be, more weak than it needs to be. In other words, sometimes when we proclaim the gospel I wonder if we're not quite proclaiming Christ the King in the way that we need to. We might talk about Christ the, the friend, and we'll talk to, to someone and say, hey, your, your sins need to be forgiven, and, and, and God wants to, to forgive your sins. You need to believe in Jesus, and we tell them to pray this prayer. And, and all those things are, are true things. Our sins do need to be forgiven. Christ is our, our friend and our, our brother, and there's, there's beautiful things about that relationship that we have. But Christ is, is more than a friend. Christ isn't some self-help guru that we call people to place their faith in. He is a, a great king. And we need to be very careful to convey the reality of who we are calling people to place their faith in. We're calling them to place their faith in a king, and we need to make sure that our, our gospel message reflects that reality. Now, it's interesting. Paul enters this city, this, this city that's the capital of this, this kingdom of Rome, and Luke, as he highlights Paul entering this, this capital city, highlights Paul's proclaiming of a, of a kingdom. He talks multiple times here as Paul enters Rome about Paul preaching the, the kingdom of God, proclaiming the, the kingdom of which Christ is the king. And you and I need to make sure that we do so as well. As Paul enters Rome, he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling people to worship a different king and to treasure a different kingdom. And those who would have heard Paul's words here would have no doubt. They would understand that allegiance to this Christ meant that no other kingdom could have ultimate loyalty. And so we need to make sure that our gospel message conveys that, that same seriousness. Here's Here's the main idea that I want us to think about this morning as we look at Acts 28, beginning in verse 11. The gospel, this good news that we call people to, the gospel calls people to forsake their worldly kingdoms and swear ultimate allegiance to their true king. As we proclaim the gospel message, we're not 
proclaiming hope in a self-help guru. We're not calling people just to make Jesus their best friend. We are calling people to forsake their worldly kingdoms and to swear ultimate loyalty and allegiance to their true king. That's what we want to make sure we convey as we convey a gospel message to a lost world. And so what I want to do in our time together this morning is to, to give you three truths, three exhortations, rather, that are, are, I think are going to be helpful for you as you seek to be faithful to this gospel proclamation. Here's the first one. Number one, be encouraged as you proclaim the kingdom. As we think about this, this kingdom message that you and I are proclaiming, you need encouragement. Be encouraged as you proclaim the kingdom. Let's look at the text. It says, uh, after three months, they've been in Malta for three months, they've passed the winter, and we set sail in a ship that had weathered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figureheads. These, these twin gods would have referred to Castor and Pollux. These were gods who were believed to protect travelers. And the irony here is that these twin gods, of course, have not been those who have been directing Paul's journey, but God has been. And Luke gives us a little bit of the, the rest of the itinerary. And here's kind of a map again to kind of see uh, where we're at. We began the journey, of course, on the bottom right-hand side of the map in Caesarea. We've made our way to Malta on the, the right side of the map. And now Paul is in Malta, and he's going to make his way, the, the text tells us, in verse 12, uh, to Syracuse. Syracuse is there in, in Sicily. And then it says that they stayed there for three days. And then verse 13, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. This would have been now in southern Italy. And now they've come to Italy, and it tells us that they travel from Regium to Puteoli. Now, that's, that's where Paul arrives. Now he's, he's arrived at Putiel. You see that in the very top left hand of the, the map there, the screen. And you see he's just really, really close now to Rome. So let's talk a little bit about his time in Putioli. Look at verses 13 through 15, and, and notice what happens next. Three little stages here this last little bit of the journey, and notice that these last stages of the journey are marked by some very kind acts of hospitality. It says verse 13, they arrive, and then verse 14, says that they put into Syracuse, sorry, verse 14, there we found the brothers and we were invited to stay with them for, for seven days. And so uh, these brothers, these other believers, found out that Paul and his companions and these soldiers were making their way to Rome, and, and they invite them in. Now, the word invite there in your text is, is perhaps not strong enough of a word. Really, it means to, the, the word that he uses there means to, like, to, to call upon us, to, to urge us to, to come and stay with them. And we've talked a little bit about hospitality. Now, Hospitality in our culture, when a person comes and stays with you, uh, hopefully you are all very kind to them, right? We'll, a person comes and stays the night, you 
maybe give them a meal in the evening and, and you provide them a bed and you set out some, some towels for them and they take a shower in the morning or whatever. And then, then in the morning you say, you want some coffee? They say, yeah, I'll take some coffee before I go. And they give them some coffee, maybe uh, some scrambled eggs or something. And then, and then they, they leave your home. Now, my parents are from Tennessee, from the South. And in the South, what you do is as they, as they get ready to leave, you walk out with them. And then you kind of stand at the end of the driveway, and you talk to them as they get in their car. Then they, they pull out a little bit, and they roll down the window. You talk to them a little bit more. And then they, in our, our house, whenever someone left, you stayed at the end of the driveway, and you did this until they had turned the, the corner, and you couldn't see them anymore. Now, in the Midwest, when people come visit you at Christmas, uh, it's a lot colder uh, early in the morning. And so we've, we've kind of adjusted that a little bit. We'll stand at our doorway and with, you know, the door open and kind of do this until they're just out of sight and then we close the door as they, as they leave, right? Well, here, here's hospitality in, in this culture. Here's what it meant. It was much more involved. In fact, you didn't even necessarily know the person who would come and stay with you. They, they came and the, the host would they, they'd ask for, for bedding and to stay the night and the, the host would, would stand and greet them. They would bring them into their, their home. They would have everyone there. There would be a feast, like a, like a big meal. There would be an offering of, of a blessing from the guest to the host. And then at some point in the evening, the, the guest would reveal who they were. So in other words, all this feasting and stuff would happen before you even knew who this person was. And then the, the, the host would give them a gift, some sort of gift from their, their, their generosity. And if the guest would receive that gift... A bond was created between these households, a bond that could last generations. So you, you have this obligation to care for one another wherever you find each other throughout the, the rest of your family's generations, right? And then, like in, in the morning, there'd be another meal that was provided. And then the, the host would travel, not just like to the end of the driveway, but the, the host would often travel them to the next leg of their journey. That was hospitality. Now, what I mean is this. These brothers who find out that, that Paul is, is traveling don't even necessarily know him. Remember, Paul has not been to this region before. Whenever he writes the book to Rome, the book of Romans, he knows some of the people there, but he likely doesn't know most of the people, if any of the people who are coming and greeting him here. But they hear about him, and they desire to care for him as he makes this next leg of his journey. And not only care for him, but they provide this lavish hospitality for him, for Luke, for Aristarchus, and for the soldiers who are, and perhaps the centurion as well. That's incredibly lavish hospitality. And then the hospitality continues. He travels to Appius, and that's this uh, marketplace, the form of Appius. This would have been this marketplace about 43 miles from Rome. And the, the brothers kind of travel from that region, perhaps at great distance, great expense. They come and they meet Paul there. It was a, a marketplace. It was not a very nice marketplace. It was filled with, it had a reputation of being filled with stingy tavern owners. Then he travels to three taverns. This was a, another town about 33 miles from Rome, and brothers, it says, meet us there as well. And again, these are brothers largely unknown to Paul. 
But they're brothers and sisters who travel to meet Paul as he prepares for what could be a very difficult next stage of ministry, a ministry he'd been told would be difficult. And how kind of the Lord is it here as Paul gets ready to enter Rome to, to, fate, to, to face a fate he's not sure what it'll be, how kind of the Lord is it to provide him with these brothers and sisters who, who practice hospitality? And, the, and notice what the text says. Notice Paul's response in verse 15. On seeing them, what did Paul do? He thanked God. He took courage. What God is calling Paul to do is not easy. And as we've seen in the book of Acts, what God is exhorting you to do in gospel witness is not easy. God is calling you to proclaim a kingdom in the midst of a kingdom that is very hostile to God's kingdom. And you need encouragement. And you need to encourage other believers to be faithful in this ministry. I was thinking about this. I think there are kind of two points of application, both for your ministry and for gospel proclamation. Here's the first one. Number one, thank God. Thank God for the believers in your life and let them know about it. Thank God for the believers in your life and, and let, let them know about it. Paul does this, he tells us in Romans, without ceasing. And you and I need to do it so as well. Let me give you a couple examples of what you can thank God for about other believers. What do I thank God for, you know? Thank God for mom and dad and my Sunday school teacher. What exactly do I say to God? Well, let's think about what Paul says. You can thank God for the believers in your life who have faith in the Lord Jesus. Number one, faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul says in Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Whenever you see people up here getting baptized, you should be thanking God for those brothers and sisters. Whenever you, you see new members, like you will this evening, you know that they're, they're people who have proclaimed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you thank God for them. As you, you look around this room and you have a relationship with others and you're, you're praying for each other, one of the first things you should be thanking God for is, God, thank you for that, the faith that exists within these people whom I love. You can also, a second thing you can thank God for is growth in knowledge. Growth in knowledge about God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes this beginning in verse 4. I give thanks to my God when always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And so you can thank God as you, you think about other believers. Thank God for the believers by name that I see in my Sunday school class or the, the believers that I, I see here uh, listening to God's Word being taught with me. I'm thankful for the believers in my Bible study class, and you mention them by name. Thank you for the things that we're studying together, that, 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 we're, that we're understanding about God by His grace. One of the great things as you're talking with other believers, one of the great things that I enjoy asking other people is, hey, what, what are you learning lately? What, what are you reading? What are the things that you're thinking about? And, and not, not to do a test or something, but as you, you talk with other believers and you hear what they're learning and what God's teaching them in life and through the, the books that they're reading and through the podcasts that they're listening to or whatever, you can just be thankful to God that people are growing in their knowledge of who God is. 
A third thing we see that we can thank God for as we think about Paul's thanking for belief, thank, thankfulness for believers is just their love for other saints. Ephesians chapter 1. Notice I'm just kind of going through the New Testament epistles, the very beginning. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writing to the people in Ephesus. For this reason, because I've heard in your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I was talking to a brother on Friday, Friday and I said, you know, this is what I'm rejoicing. I'm, I rejoice as I, I see your love for other saints. You can also thank God for other believers as you talk about partnership in the gospel. God, I thank you for this brother. I thank you for this sister that we're partnering the, in the gospel together. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, uh, for, for you all are, are, are making, uh, for you, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. God, I'm thankful for these brothers and sisters who are, are, are engaged in this kingdom gospel proclamation ministry with me. Now, I think a couple things happen when we do this. First of all, if we tell other believers, hey, I'm just thankful to God for you. I'm thankful for your faith. You, know, you, you shared your testimony in small group last week, and I've just been thanking God for your faith. That, that's encouraging for a person, right? Or I, yeah, I'm just so thankful for the things you share that you're learning. That encouraged my soul. Thank you for that. That encourages someone. The Christian life is not easy. Gospel proclamation is not easy. And, and having other saints tell us, hey, I'm praying for you, and this specifically is what I'm praying for you, that's encouraging to the saints. Secondly, another encouragement that, that I think we gain from this is just it encourages us to, to pray this way and to think this way. Let me say this in a nice way. That's always a bad sign. <laughs> uh, some of us can be a little gloomy sometimes, right? My dad would call me Eeyore in high school. You know, why so down? Let me suggest. One of the reasons that you might be gloomy is is you're not praying as God has called you to pray. Someone asks you, how are things going? And you say, well, you know, my car this, my house this, my kids that. And and it's not like you're trying to be discouraging, but these are just the things that your mind is is thinking about and meditating on. But if you've been faithful to, to pray, thanking God for the saints that God has brought into your life, thanking for their faith and for their growth and knowledge and for their, their testimony and, and for the partnership in the gospel, as you're thanking God for those things, it's going to affect what you think about. It's going to affect your ability to, to be encouraged, to be motivated in gospel ministry. So, be encouraged as you proclaim the kingdom. One thought of application is to thank God for the believers in your life, to let them know about it. As we think about this, be encouraged to proclaim the kingdom. A second point of application would be this. Encourage others in their kingdom labors. Encourage others in their kingdom labors. 
encouragement here has, has a couple of components. They're, they're persistent participants, right? They're, they, they prevailed upon Paul to show hospitality. They're committed to that, and it's costly. The next point, though, let's, let's move on here. Be transparent as you proclaim the kingdom. My, my second exhortation to you as we look at the text. Paul arrives in Rome in verse 16. And as he's arriving in Rome, it says that he's allowed to stay by himself in this, with a soldier who's, who's guarding him. He's staying at a, a rented home and most likely able to do that because of the generosity of other believers. And it says that he, he gathers this, this, this audience to himself, right? Verse 17, three days go by, and he calls the, the Jewish leaders to, to come see him. He wouldn't have been allowed to, to go to the synagogue, but because of his reputation as a Pharisee, because of his, his uh, Pharisaical training, he has the ability to call some of the Jewish leaders there to him and to come and to listen to him. He has this built-in network. He takes advantage of it. All of us have this kind of network, right? I mean, uh, some of you may have this, this built-in network as, your, as you think about your job or as you think about uh, hobbies that you have. Uh, Whitney and I were amazed whenever we uh, had Hannah, whenever we, we had this baby. And all of a sudden, we found out this, this club we hadn't really even known exist, like the, the baby club. And if you have a baby, it allows other people who are part of the baby club to, to come and to talk to you about your baby. And you can be strangers on the street or whatever. And, oh, you have a baby too. I've got one of those. And you show each other the babies. And How big is your baby? How old is your baby? How's teething going? Does it have its shots? I mean, things, it's actually very similar to the pet club, right? I mean, <laughs> same questions, really. You know, but you're, you're in. Paul takes advantage of his audience, this, this network that he has, and begins to, to seek them out. And in verses 17 through 19, he addresses the, the circumstances that brought him here. He says to, to the, the leaders of the Jews, he says, brothers, I, I, let, let, me, let me tell you what happened here. He doesn't try to trick them into listening in. He, he, he lays out immediately what had happened. He says, I've, I've done nothing wrong against our people or the customs of our fathers, but I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem to the hand of the Romans. And we've, we've heard all this before as we've gone through Acts. Verse 18, he talks about how they examined him and how they, the Romans had wanted to set him at liberty. But verse 19, the Jews objected. And I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, although I wasn't bringing any like, counter charges against them. And then he says in verse 20, for this reason, I've asked to see you and speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And this, is, this idea of the hope of Israel is something that he's been talking about since Acts chapter 23, verse 6. Remember when he stands up in Jerusalem in the midst of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and says uh, to that group, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And uh, he, since that meeting, he has been proclaiming his hope. And because of his transparency and his willingness to tell them why he's there and what he's doing, they say, look, we, haven't, we don't know anything about you. 
we haven't received any letters from Judea about you, and uh, we haven't heard any evil, but this sect that you're talking about, it's spoken against everywhere as being, uh, as being people being against it. Now, they say, we do want to hear more about what you have to say. And so they agree to, to come back and, and hear him. We desire, as we interact with the world, to be transparent about our motives and our gospel witness. And, and we're driven by, by one motive, and that motive is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So Paul, as he's talking to people, like, this is why I'm here. There's a, there's a novel, uh, David Copperfield. There's a character in it named Mr. Wickfield, and, and he's a, a widower, and, and, but he's, he's a lawyer, and he's constantly trying to discern the motives of, the, of other people. And he says this at one point, he says, I have only one motive in life. Other people have dozens, scores, hundreds. I have only one. And, and young David Copperfield wonders, okay, what is his one motive? And then he, he sees Mr. Wickfield uh, interact with his daughter, and he, he suddenly understands. He, he, he says this, When I heard how he talked of his daughter and saw how he held her hand, I guessed immediately what the one motive of his life was. It was obvious, it was clear, this is why this guy existed. If people were to examine your life, are you, are you transparent enough about your desire to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? They'd say, okay, that's, that's Daniel's one motive. That's his, his driving ambition is to glorify God and be, be faithful what God has called him to do in all areas. In fact, I'd encourage you, here's kind of an application for you, try that this week. In different groups you're part of with your, with your family or your co-workers, or say, hey, what do you think is the most important thing to me? What, what would you say is the most important thing in my life? And, and just see what people say. If they say, well, you know, I think the most important to you, thing to you is probably your faith, probably your faith in Jesus Christ. You say, yeah, that, thank you. That's exactly. Why, why did you say that? That's exactly right. And, and here's why I hope that is true. You know, or if they say something else, say, oh, that's disappointing. You know, I, I want my, my ultimate hope to be my faith in Christ. It's a great question to ask people who are close to you. Here's a third thing I want to encourage you with as you think about your, your kingdom proclamation. Number three, be confident as you proclaim the kingdom. Be confident. You need to be bold. Not a brashness, but, but a bold confidence. Verse 23 tells us it's the appointed day. And the Jews come to him at this, at this place that he's renting this lodging, and they come in great numbers. And it says, from morning till evening, he expounds to them. He's, he's testifying to them <clears throat> the kingdom of God. And again, this is his kingdom message, his gospel message. And he's, he's trying to persuade them. He's engaged in this conversation trying to persuade them that, that, about Jesus, that he's the king. And he does this both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He's using Scripture and trying to convey to them the truth of the gospel. Let me give you three points here that help us, I think, to understand what's happening here. Number one, this is, this is the nature of what we need to be confident in. Number one, we are confident that the kingdom message offers an explanation for the totality of reality, okay? What, what are we confident in as, as we proclaim the kingdom? First of all, we're confident 
that the kingdom message offers an explanation for the totality of reality. As I proclaim this kingdom message, I'm confident, hey, these words that I'm saying are going to explain all of human existence to you. I, I have confidence in that. And let me encourage you with this too. We need to live in light of that confidence. Live confidently in what we say that we believe. We're we're all in in this. Now, sometimes some of you, maybe some of you are parents, and and sometimes you're very worried about the world and the world's influence on your children. And that's an okay thing to be concerned about, right? I mean, the the world is is deceptive and and its message is deceptive. But let let me suggest this to you. Your kids could be in greater danger from your idolatry than the world's deception. Your kids could be in greater danger as they watch what you worship than as they listen to the world's deceptive message. Because you're telling them, look, I believe that God is, is, is powerful. I believe that, that Jesus is a great king, that he's to be worshipped. But, but then we deny it. We deny it by how we actually live, by what we actually worship. God is a great king, but I don't reflect that I trust him to meet my needs. And my kids see that. I say that, that, that Jesus is, is, is my, my, my Lord and my Savior, and he's brought me into relationship with him, but then they, they, they see how I, I talk about the church and treat the church, and, and, and the, there's a disconnect. Or they tell me that I, I tell them I, I believe that God owns all things and He's the one to receive all things from. And then they watch how I spend my money and they're not quite sure. I'm not li- really living in confidence that the kingdom message proclaims and describes all of reality. Now, here's the good news for you, for all of us the reality that the world offers doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold together. For example, the the world proclaims tolerance, but it's intolerant. It proclaims materialism, but the world obviously longs for something more. The the world preaches secularism, but mandates its own religion. The worldview that that others are trying to convey to your children and to us doesn't hold together. That's, That's the good news. Only the gospel proclaims the totality of reality, and that's what we can have confidence in. Paul Davies is a physicist, a kind of a theoretical physicist, not a believer, doesn't believe in God. But listen to what he says. Listen to what he writes. He says, I concede that the universe at least appears to be designed. It, it looks like it's designed with a high level of ingenuity. He says, it seems to me like there's a genuine scheme of things. The universe seems like it's about something. He says, it it seems like it's following some sort of predetermined script. So it looks like it's designed. It acts like it's following a script, but surely it can't be. He says this. He says, I I don't believe in God. I want to stay away from some pre-existing cosmic magician who's there within time, from all eternity, and then brings the universe into being as part of a preconceived plan. I think that idea, that idea of a God, is a just naive, silly idea that doesn't fit in with the leanings of most scientific facts. I don't want that. That's a horrible idea. So you know what he 
argues for instead of a God. He either argues, there's two possibilities or several possibilities. One like a, an infinite number of universes. That's, that's how we got this one. Or he says maybe beings, super intelligent beings from the future traveled back in time and established the laws of physics from the beginning. But God is silly, right? You know what? I'm okay putting my faith up against that with my children, right? Or sometimes people say, well, I don't want to talk to my coworker about this because I know know they don't believe what I believe. And okay, look, I'm not saying be brash and arrogant and rude, but seriously, the gospel explains the totality of reality, and and, and that's a, a, a thing we can be confident. Be confident as you proclaim the kingdom. Paul has to proclaim the kingdom in the midst of a kingdom that venerates emperors. That was a kingdom that was crumbling even as it began. You should be confident as we proclaim the kingdom. We're confident. We're confident that the kingdom message offers an explanation for the totality of reality. We're also confident that the kingdom message demands submission to a loving king. As I proclaim this gospel message, I'm I'm confident in this. Look, hey, God wants you to submit to him as king. That's not a a thing I need to be shy about. I don't need to be afraid to call my children to submit to God. I don't need to be afraid to call my my co-workers, my my, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't need to be afraid to call anyone to submit themselves to the king. Sometimes we're afraid of that. We're we're, we're shy. We're bashful about that truth. You don't need to be. You don't. it's, It's not a It's not something you need to be shy about in proclaiming people to submit to a king. It's a loving thing to proclaim. Sometimes people may not naturally like the idea of submitting to a king, but look, we can show them over and over again very, very easily that submission to God is far better than the path of so-called freedom living apart from his rule. It's so obvious, right? So, for example, the idea of sexual freedom, right? Young people, do not be deceived in believing that living in disobedience to Christ's commands for how you live your life in terms of your sexuality, that there's going to be freedom in that and joy. I was, just, I was watching a show recently. Uh, I saw an incredible example of this, a new Marvel show, right, and TV show. And the main character is this woman. She starts dating a guy, and the relationship became physically intimate after a few dates. And, and then the, the guy with whom she had been physically intimate, disappeared. And she was kind of sad about that. And she, she talked about with her friends about, oh, I texted him and I tried to call him. And, and everyone ridiculed her for that. Oh, you're clingy. I know I'm clingy. I shouldn't be so demanding. And she was seen as some sort of pathetic creature for desiring a relational commitment from a man with whom she'd been intimate. That, that's your alternative? Okay. Okay, that, that's, that's interesting. Let me give you this scenario. A man and a woman enter in a committed covenant relationship and experience the joy of intimacy, physical, emotional, spiritual, within that covenant relationship. Now, you give me that, you know, the, the TV version of, of sexual freedom, and, and I'll give you submission to a, a king who loves you, and we'll, we'll see how physical intimacy goes over, goes over the next 50 years and tell me where more joy has been found. I'm not afraid to preach that. I'm not afraid to call people to that, right? Now you say, oh, what, what if I've messed up? Don't be discouraged. If you follow the world's way, there's, don't say there's no hope for me. God can redeem fully at any moment, right? But we repent 
we trust, we see the beauty in submitting to God as king. We're confident in that. And the other thing that we're confident in as we proclaim the kingdom, we're confident that this kingdom message can be, can be understood through God's special revelation in Scripture. Notice how simple Paul's preaching is. He doesn't have to bring in a lot of props. He doesn't have to bring in a lot of, you know, like some sort of uh, special presentation. He doesn't have to bring some sort of multimedia event into the, the house with him. He just takes Scripture and he presents, look, this is who God is from his word. And we can be confident of that as well. The gospel calls people to forsake their worldly kingdom and to swear ultimate allegiance to the true king. The gospel message is about getting out of hell, but not just about that. It's about entering into a relationship with a friend, but it's not just about that. It's about abandoning this kingdom and experiencing the fullness of life and obedience to the great king. It's not about loving the best that this world can offer and Jesus, but to willingly trading all things that this world could offer for the joy of fellowship with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you. We submit to you as our King. We're excited for the ability to enter into relationship with you and would ask that you would continue to draw us near to you. Help us to have confidence as we proclaim this, this good news. Help us to have confidence as we live out this good news in our lives. And, and Father, we confess failure to you. Please give us grace to draw us deeper into obedience. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.